Welcome to Sagittarius I Audio Edition, Issue 5, January 3304. Word for word, the articles that appear in this month's Sagittarius I magazine, expertly recorded to keep you entertained and informed, out in the black. Editorial. It has long perplexed this reporter that in January, a month in which nobody has any money, there are no more parties in the diary and the weather is bleak, many people choose to embrace puritanical resolutions, arbitrarily denying themselves fun things like alcohol and taking themselves off jogging in droves. Surely this time of year needs no helping, awful. Not so the Sagittarius I team who, on the first day of 3304, hung up their typewriters to see in the new year with a high-octane canyon race. You can find out which of us hacks is the death test with a fly stick within. It is in this spirit that we bring you our January issue. Not one, but two greasy elbow starship reviews await you, as well as more Thorgoy content than a scavenger can speed green goop at. We have breaking news from a guest contributor of the Mod of Flowers' latest incursions into our space. Some thoughtful commentary as to their nature and purpose, as well as searching investigations into Project Equinox and the enigmatic Jasmina Halsey. So stick that in your Ramlocks, readers. Born 3304. The Enigma Expedition. Humans have encountered many puzzles in the galaxy, some that exist within ourselves, some that call to us from the far black, and then the ones that spring seemingly from nowhere, reaching out to touch humanity from the very darkness between the stars. The newly formed Enigma expedition aims to address the greatest of those dark puzzles, the Thargoids. Ever since the Thargoids attacked our stations in the Pleiades, our hospitals have been filling up with the victims of their alien weaponry. The casualties bear unfamiliar caustic injuries that are challenging our finest medical minds. But if history has taught us one thing, it is that humanity never backs away from a challenge. Commander Dove Enigma 13 has risen to that challenge and is spearheading an expedition to Colonia to help humanity's newest colony prepare to face the Thargoid threat. His Enigma expedition plans to take medical and tactical data to a specialist facility in Colonia to help the colony prepare itself for the anticipated waves of refugees. The expedition's legacy will be the science megaship Dove Enigma, which will remain in Colonia to continue its work as a memorial for humanity's determination in the face of adversity. The Barnacle Mystery. Life or Machine? For a long time their observed characteristics didn't change. They seemed to encourage the growth of mineral spikes around them which bore strange fruits known as meta-alloys. The sounds of geological activity beneath them hinted at subterranean mining or extraction. Then in 3303 reports hit describing the alien spacecraft visiting the barnacles and interacting with them. Their beam of green light could be a tool for extracting something from the barnacles or imparting something to them. The relationship between these two organic phenomena deepened further with the discovery of the abandoned Thargoid bases on airless worlds. Your correspondent visited several of these and saw for himself the giant petals rearing out of the ground. The central structure is undeniably similar to the barnacles themselves 
suggesting a later evolution perhaps. These unknown relationships perplex the galaxy's scientists. There is a distinct sense of emptiness about the Thargoids. Their spacecraft behave more like animals than vehicles and we know from their wreckage that they contain no pilots. Are they the Thargoids themselves? If so they resemble no kind of life we recognise. It's unclear how they would build structures like their planetary surface bases or reproduce for example not to mention evolve in a vacuum. If not perhaps they are merely the autonomous foot soldiers of yet unseen sentient aliens. In this case it makes more sense that their bases are abandoned. The star maps within these structures hint that their makers may be extragalactic in origin as they resemble a galaxy unlike the Milky Way. If so it might make sense to send their autonomous creations ahead of them to gauge the danger. Xenobiologists sense the hallmarks of design in the organic circuitry of the Thargoid craft and barnacles. Historians recall a thinker from our species uniplanetary days. Enrico Fermi in the 20th century asked where, given the abundance of worlds conducive to life in the Milky Way, were all the other sentient species. It took our species a mere 60,000 years to evolve from the sort of non-cognizant species we routinely encounter to our current interstellar selves. A blink of an eye in cosmic terms. Where are all the other civilizations? A possible explanation was posited in the Great Filter. This is a cataclysmic event sufficient to extinguish all complex life like an asteroid impact or an interstellar burst of radiation which strikes every planet frequently and regularly enough to prohibit any one organism evolving to a level of intelligence that permits them to leave that planet. This great filter ensures that sentient life in the Milky Way is incredibly rare. Scientists in Fermi's time accepted this. Earth's geological record indicated that there had been 5 extinction level incidents in that planet's short history and their grouping indicated that we were well overdue another. Soon after we began colonising Mars and beyond and our proverbial eggs were no longer in one planetary basket. This eloquently explained the conundrum of our loneliness. There were no other spacefaring species because the galaxy tended to nuke planets before those societies could evolve. We had escaped by fluke and then placed ourselves beyond risk by our cleverness. The great filter was behind us. This theory made sense and flattered us at the same time. The small matter of the mysterious alien relic allegedly discovered on Mars was brushed out of sight. Then the Guardian ruins were discovered. Suddenly xenologists were forced to revisit the core assumption that we were alone in our sophistication. Not only had the Guardians been a complex, social, spacefaring species but they had been right on our doorstep, a mere thousand light years away, barely 1% of the expanse of the galaxy and they were gone. This was terrible news for our species. If a sentient species can gain the ability to travel beyond one planet so close to us, probability dictates that there should be somewhere in the order of magnitude of 3400 other spacefaring species in the Milky Way assuming an equal distribution. But there aren't. Since consumer level frameshift drives hit the market 
humans have explored nearly every corner of our galaxy. The EDSM is an organisation of cartographers who, in association with Universal Cartographics, plot the courses of most independent pilots. As we know there are areas of heavier traffic. The routes to and from Colonia and famous destinations like Beagle Point and Sagittarius A star are well trodden. But it is striking how those delicate white tendrils stretch through nearly every patch of every spiral arm. We haven't visited every star far from it. But we've explored enough of the galaxy that if there were 3400 other spacefaring species out there we would have found evidence of at least a few of them. So back to Fermi's question. Where are they? And where, for that matter, are the Guardians? The inevitable conclusion of this line of questioning is that the great filter far from being in humanity's distant past lies ahead of us. Species routinely involved to a spacefaring stage like ours but something happens to wipe them out. Something like what happened to the Guardians. What could a great filter like this be? A flash of radiation could do it like those emitted by supernovae but the species would need to be confined to one small patch of space for this to nail them all. An asteroid impact wouldn't do it as it would only wipe out one of their planets. A more plausible possibility would be a powerful spacefaring species far beyond the capabilities of our own determined to weed out any upstarts. If this is true the prognosis is grave for humanity. The Guardians were wiped out by the Thargoids before us as were every one of the 3400 missing sentient species in the Milky Way and now they're coming for us. In this scenario there is no Xeno ally. We're in for a fight to survive. The laws of probability do permit another possibility. The great filter could indeed be behind us if there is a causal link between the Guardians, the Thargoids and ourselves. As mentioned there is evidence of design in the Thargoid biology. Most Xenobiologists agree that they lack most of the traditional admittedly arbitrary features of life. The barnacles in particular resemble biological machines more than individuals belonging to a species. We know that the Guardians were capable of genetic level design. If they created the Thargoids as their weapons those weapons could have turned upon their makers and wiped them out. This would explain why the Guardians are gone and why the Thargoids seem to hate Guardian relics. If the Guardians also created us it would explain why in our entire Milky Way there have existed only three known multi-planet species and all clustered around one tiny patch of a nondescript stub of a spiral arm. If the Great Filter is behind us the Thargoids and ourselves are two orphaned children of the same vanished parents in which case there could be much to gain from trying to communicate with our strange cousins. Shipyard Cobra Mark III Welcome to the first edition of Sagittarius Eye's Shipyard feature. In this edition I'm going to take a closer look at one of humanity's most iconic spacefaring vessels, Falcon de Lacy's Cobra Mark III, 
A much-loved multi-purpose vessel, the Mark III represents a cost-effective gateway into many career paths for newer commanders. Let's find out why. The Cobra boasts incredible speed even without aftermarket customization. For those speed freaks amongst you mad enough to fly shieldless, you'll be pushing over 460 metres per second on the boost without modifications. While somewhat hampered by a lower manoeuvrability than other smaller ships like the Eagle Mark II, the ability to control range in a combat situation allows the Cobra to hold its own if forced to fight. Despite matching a Viper Mark III firepower, a reduced shield integrity could prove a problem for prospective bounty hunters. The Cobra's true strengths lie in its other attributes. The carrying capacity is over double that of a hauler and it costs a fraction of the price of a Type 6, whilst also being able to protect its cargo from would-be plunderers. For those prospective traders amongst you, the Cobra is an excellent choice if your bank is still a little light. Alternatively, for those who wish to push the boundaries of humanity's maps, the Cobra is an excellent and affordable exploration ship. With internals suitable for scanners, fuel scoops, repair systems and even a shield generator, you can rely on the Cobra to allow you to sail through the void pushed by the most distant stellar winds. The ship does sound good on paper, but paper only goes so far. To find out how the Cobra truly performs, I had to get my hands on one. Unfortunately, DeLacy didn't respond to our request for one on loan. However, I've been needing a small multi-purpose ship for a while, so I bought one of my own. The ship normally sells for a hair under 350,000 credits, CR, though a little digging around and you'll be able to find new models for under 300,000 CR. You'll get your typical E-rated internal modules and a couple of pulse lasers. In terms of upgrade costs, I ended up spending around 9 million CR, including the purchase price, though it's perfectly possible to get a lot out of the ship without spending this much. The first thing you notice is the extra seat. If you're the social type, you can bring a friend along with you. The cockpit is spacious for a small craft, but as ever in a DeLacy ship, you're not quite sitting in Luxury's lap. Everything has a purpose and nothing is for decoration. If you're the customising sort of pilot, then there's plenty of room for whatever aesthetic modifications you want to make. As it is to be expected from DeLacy, the rough around the edges feel is not reflective of the ship's reliability. I've had no technical issues whatsoever. Before taking on any missions, I decided to throw the ship around a bit. Fortunately, in Santu, there's a marvellous scientific installation that presents many harsh corners, tunnels and obstacles to deal with. I decided to test the Cobra here due to its small size and high speed. As expected, the performance on the straight and narrow is excellent. Huge acceleration and top speed allow the ship to scream through the tunnels in the blink of an eye, a sensation I doubt I will ever grow tired of. However, throwing corners into the mix, I started to see some problems. My first attempt in a cornered tunnel ended up breaking my relatively thin shield after attempting to boost to counteract my momentum. Whilst some of my comrades and rivals would like to say this was my fault, I'm afraid I must blame the Cobra. The ship is somewhat drifty in the corners and its massive speed proves to be its own weakness. The momentum can prove difficult to counter even with a well-timed boost. A lot of this is down to the relatively weak vertical and lateral thrusters, with heavy reliance on the main engines being the only hope of pulling a tight turn at top speed. This leads to a tendency to start preparing for a turn, and in a combat situation you not only open yourself up to attack with that large plan profile, but you likely won't be able to land many of your own attacks either. 
This is definitely a ship where aftermarket thruster modifications are in order. Despite these issues, it will manage to outturn a Viper, but Eagles can be a big problem due to their very high manoeuvrability. Having knocked the ship around enough, I took her back to the starport to pick up a contract at the local mission board. To make it interesting, I went for a smuggling run. Three tons of battle weapons to a nearby system, only two jumps away. Departure was relatively uneventful, and I did not encounter any trouble until the final destination, whereupon I discovered that a tip-off had beaten me there. A Viper Mark III lined up behind me, and the interdiction began. I was ripped out of supercruise and tumbled inelegantly for a few seconds, as did my attacker. Not taking time to scan or threaten me, they immediately opened up and started hammering my shields. Since my frameshift drive had another 20 or so seconds to cool down, I decided to fight back. I threw the ship in reverse briefly and hit the chaff while my weapons deployed. I had equipped two medium fixed pass lasers and a pair of Enforcer multi-cannons. My attacker's chaff served him no help as my lasers made fast work of his shields. I hit the boost and sailed past as my chaff expired. Pulling up to attempt some more fire, my ship suffered a stall from the boost and we matched turn speeds. Boosting again, my weapon's capacitor was still low on charge, so I unleashed the multi-cannons on the return pass. Unfortunately, due to the Viper's small profile and the wide hardpoint placement of the enforcers, the round shot past him harmlessly. As my weapons missed their mark, the Viper slammed a couple of plasma accelerator shots into my shield and broke it. My frameshift drive had just cooled, so I took the opportunity to get out before the situation could degrade further. This proves the Cobra's survivability. I continued through supercruise to the station without further incidents. Going into silent running, I was easily able to guide the small ship past the security forces and onto the landing pad. A job well done, if a little hairy in places. Unfortunately, I haven't had the time to take the Cobra on a serious exploration trip. The furthest I've travelled with it so far is to Maya, and I can say that this ship has a comfortable jump range. The size 4 fuel scoop is also a nice feature, filling up the tank at a good pace. It would not be my first choice as an exploration vessel, but it's certainly more than capable, if a little more survivability is needed than what's on offered by a hauler. With aftermarket frameshift drive modifications and perhaps some lightening of internal modules, the Cobra's jump range has a lot of potential. Certainly an excellent candidate for a cheap explorer. Overall, the Cobra Mark III is an excellent all-rounder at a reasonable price. If one has not decided what career path to take, it's a superb ship to help make that decision. A respectable jump range and cargo capacity for the price, while still being able to defend itself, makes it one of the best ships available in terms of value for money. I would even go so far as to recommend it to those more experienced pilots who simply need a small ship for their day-to-day -day business that a larger ship may be overkill for. It is understandable why it has been a favourite for over two centuries now, and I expect to see no change in that reputation. Thargoid Encounters Bulletin Dateline, January 5, 3304, Green Enterprise, Ngalia, Arietas Sector Thargoid interceptions are now taking place closer to high population systems than ever before. It's been little more than six months since the Thargoids returned en masse to assert themselves as the dominant life form throughout the Pleiades sector. But until now, sightings and interactions with the large alien interceptors have been rare outside that sector, 
hundreds of light-years away from any heavily populated human systems. That has now changed. In the two days since Sirius Incorporated announced construction of a flight operations megaship in the 42N Persei system, pilots around the Ingalia system have begun reporting harrowing encounters with the alien megafauna. The most recent of these encounters happened about 1400 hours on January 5th. Commander Talion Camisade reported being interdicted by a Thargoid interceptor while flying his cutter fully loaded with autofabricators, to Ingalia, from Bear Laboratory in the Masses system. Upon arrival at Green Enterprise, he notified authorities that his cutter had been subjected to a frameshift drive destabilisation about 30 light-years from the Masses system. His ship was pulled out of its interstellar jump, then hit with a Thargoid shutdown field, which killed the ship's power. Moments later, Camisade was deafened by the eerie sounds that echoed within his ship. These are believed to be caused by some form of electromagnetic interaction between the alloys in our ship's hulls and the Thargoid probing technology. Within moments, the creature passed close by Camisade's cockpit windows and then hyperspace jumped away. Camisade could not identify the Thargoid interceptor type. He did report that even from three or four kilometres away, the alien still looked huge. These Thargoid sightings put the aliens less than two dozen light-years from human systems with over a billion inhabitants. Project Equinox and Beyond During what future generations may call the first war against the Thargoids, 3125 to 3151, the Joint Federation Empire Organization, INRA, conducted cutting-edge research in an effort to develop war-winning technologies, while brave Galcop pilots patrolled vulnerable star systems for alien ships. Later in the war, Galcop was forced to divert ever greater numbers of merchant pilots to the war effort. This is often cited as one of the reasons for Galcop's ultimate collapse over a century ago. Too little commerce during the war years left the superpower on shaky economic grounds and unable to weather the storms that racked their post-war leadership. Looking back, it's difficult for most of us to fully understand how terrifying the situation must have been. Facing a far more powerful and largely unknown enemy that could apparently appear and disappear at will. It's no wonder Inra used every advantage they had, even resorting to bioweapons. While the total loss of life during the war was relatively low, some sources suggest that piracy accounts for more deaths each year than the entire 25-year-long war against the aliens, it is clear the potential threat posed by a hostile, technologically superior and expansionist enemy far outweigh any other consideration. Aegis, as we all know, very publicly formed last year and, soon after, it announced that the vaunted capital fleets of the great powers are ineffective against the aliens. It seems that once again, our best defense against the Thargoids is to arm as many civilians as possible and get them out there fighting back against the octagonal menace. The main difference is that, for now, the resurgent Thargoids are located outside the bubble in a newly populated area of space. While attacks in the Pleiades are causing loss of life and devastating infrastructure and trade, it is currently not affecting the main population centers of humanity. Yet. The big question is, 
How did we get to this situation? After the last war, did the galaxy just forget about the threat represented by our ammonia-based antagonists? Did anyone plan for the possible return of the Thargoids? The answer, it seems, is yes. But something seems to have gone wrong. In late 3303, Commander Starfire MMMCCL discovered a listening post in the Jotunheim system containing a message that might start to shed some light on how we've ended up where we are now. The message is reproduced here in its entirety. Communication source identified Gale. Designation Project Thunderchild, Unit 01. I've detected an encoded transmission emitted from a location 591.10 light years from this beacon. This signal has triggered a new subroutine in my core program. The signal source appears to have been dormant until recently and began transmitting seemingly as a reaction to news of the Thargoid's return being broadcast. I've analyzed the code contained in the subroutine and discovered a small data packet that contains various overlapping signals regarding the work of a Dr. Calvin, designated Project Equinox. These appear to be markers leading to an archive of some kind containing Calvin's research. In the upcoming struggle, Dr. Calvin's data may be critical. Calling all Galcop personnel, we must find Calvin's archive and retrieve the data at all costs. From this listening post, we are introduced to quite a few things that provide insights into some long-forgotten post-war projects. One of the most important parts of this message is the reference to an archive of critical research to be found somewhere. From the mention of Galcop, we can date the origin of this listening post to no later than 3174, when Galcop was officially disbanded. The rest of the data points to the location of a megaship identified as the GCS Sarasvati. The Sarasvati was found abandoned by an explorer using the public alias Smarty 771 and contained logs which should have sent shockwaves through the bubble. Instead, they were accepted with little commentary and largely drowned in the wake of revelations regarding the Thargoids and Inra. From the remaining logs left by Dr. Cassandra Lockhart, we now know that after the sudden, and at the time completely unexplained, disappearance of the Thargoids in 3151, Galcop established a series of monitoring stations under the name Equinox to keep an eye out for the return of the Thargoids. The logs are frustratingly vague about the exact nature, numbers or locations of these monitoring stations, and it is also unclear whether the Sarasvati herself was one such outpost. The collapse of Galcop, which actually occurred while Project Equinox was keeping lookout, makes tracking down any remaining evidence of the project extremely difficult. This is the first of the secrets revealed by the logs. Not even Galcop knew where the Thargoids went. They felt it necessary to set up a covert project outside human space in order to stand guard. At the time, this would have been a monumental task indeed. Lockhart's logs show that for 20 years after the war, Project Equinox stood guard and found nothing. Her final log, however, reveals a wealth of puzzling information. Before we delve into a final log, classical scholars will recall that the Cassandra of ancient Earth mythology was cursed by a god to have accurate visions of the future 
but was never believed when she told people what she'd foreseen. Project Equinox monitoring log 3172.08.16. They're shutting us down. After all this time, we finally have a breakthrough and they're shutting us down. How in the hell can the Federation and Empire be so short-sighted? It was literally under our noses the entire time. The Thargoids didn't leave, not all of them at least. If we had more time, we might have been able to run a more detailed analysis, but the data we have right now already paints a pretty grim picture as is. The Thargoids are sowing the seeds for their return. We couldn't detect them before because the traces were so minuscule, but it's clear that these new self-repairing alloys that are starting to pop up in labs everywhere share an alarming amount of physical characteristics with Thargoid bio-alloys pulled from their ships during the war. This is the smoking gun, and no one is willing or able to do anything about it anymore. The Federation won't listen, Duval won't listen, and Galcop has fractured to the point where even the old worlds probably won't listen. Maybe Thunderchild could have done something, but they went dark in 69. We're almost out of time. Why was Equinox shut down? Cassandra, in her logs, tells us how she tried to convince people that they had succeeded in their mission and finally detected signs of the Thargoids. And she sounds quite urgent. Yet despite what appears to be a dire warning, she also suggests that Galcop has fractured too far, that the Empire and Federation won't listen, and that the project is shut down completely. It was over 130 years before the major powers would acknowledge the Thargoids in public again, and even then only reluctantly. In August of 3302, a pair of independent pilots, Noctrak and Ihazovich, cracked the Granger Gang's ransom cipher and discovered the wreckage of what we now know as a Thargoid ship in the Pleiades. Over the next few months, the superpowers refused to offer any sort of definitive answer, just as they had when the then-unknown Thargoid space probes were discovered years before. When Commander D.P. Sayre was hyperindicted in January last year, the superpowers still refused to inform the public of what they must surely have known. Even in April last year, Federal Admiral Aidan Tanner, later to become a founding member of Aegis, claimed to have no additional knowledge of the aliens appearing more and more frequently in the Pleiades, saying only, When we know more, you'll know more. Are we to believe that the Chief of Federal Security and Admiral of the Fleet with over 40 years service knew nothing at all? It wasn't until June of 3303 that the galaxy was given official confirmation that the Thargoids had returned, and it didn't come from the superpowers. It came from a messy leak to the Federal Times by Professor Ishmael Palin, a leading authority on xenobiological research. The public mood was best summarized by Kelvin Masters, a freelance journalist whose comments were reprinted by Galnet at the time. Look at the history books. Every time we've met the Thargoids, there's bloodshed. We need to prepare for the worst. I mean, they've already attacked human ships. What kind of contingencies do the superpowers have in place? And what do we know about the Thargoids' capabilities? What weapons do they have? What kind of defences? And why did the Federation take Palin's data? Why are they trying to keep it quiet? These questions need to be answered! The questions asked by Masters are equally valid, if not more so today. What's been going on for the last 150 years behind the closed doors of power? And why did we only get public confirmation of the Thargoids when they arrived on a galactic doorstep last year? 
One possible reason for the termination of Equinox might have been that the superpowers already felt they had an adequate weapon. The mycoid worked once, so why couldn't it be used again? The more frightening possibility is that the superpowers might have had an even more powerful weapon in development. Could the mycoid have been simply a first-strike tactical deterrent in a war that has not yet ended? Another, even more chilling solution might be that the superpowers already knew the Thargoids were still around. If this is the case, then that raises many more questions than it answers, chief among them. After over 20 years of dedicated service on a secret project, why was the Equinox team left out in the cold? But it's clear that these new self-repairing alloys that are starting to pop up in labs everywhere share an alarming amount of physical characteristics with Thargoid bio-alloys pulled from their ships during the war. It seems the Thargoids did leave a lot behind in the Pleiades area. Over 200 structures on the surface of planets have been discovered over the past year, as well as at least a few crashed ships. It is entirely possible that what we're seeing now is what is left after 150 years of scavenging and raiding by government and private R&D teams. Maybe what we've rediscovered is just the bits that were too damaged or large to recover previously, or too small and missed like the shipwrecks. This could easily account for the almost complete disinterest that the major powers have shown towards the older sites in the Pleiades. From Cassandra's logs, it's difficult to tell why the very presence of Thargoid-like materials being researched in human space is significant to her. Perhaps she knew that the powers did not manage to find anything valuable in the Pleiades. If that was the case, then finding evidence of Thargoid tech being researched in human space would indeed be troubling, and the question would be, where is it coming from? Some researchers like veteran investigator Commander Yorki Rasselas feel that the self-repairing alloys are now what we call meta-alloys. I think Cassandra was aware of meta-alloys. She was lead of a defence project so would have had the connections to be aware and knew they came from some organic growths, the barnacles. She recognised the MA similarity in repair behaviour to alloys taken directly from Thargoid shipwrecks during the war and made the connection. Ergo, the Thargoids had sown seeds, barnacles, for their return. Unless we assume Dr Lockhart was mistaken, then the Thargoids did something that Equinox was able to detect. It certainly does look like the barnacles have grown from underground which would fit with the concept of them being seeded. The origin and purpose of the barnacles has been a mystery ever since Commander Octo discovered the first one. Are the new ones discovered almost daily by the eye-straining efforts of pilots like Commander Pan Piper and others newly grown? Or are they decades old and only just being discovered? We do know of at least one barnacle forest where many barnacles grow together in an eight-limbed pattern around a very large central barnacle. Possibly one of the most enigmatic elements in this log is Dr Lockhart's assertion that the Thargoids never actually left. She says, It was literally under our noses the entire time. The Thargoids didn't leave. Not all of them at least. Her meaning seems pretty obvious on the surface. Some Thargoids remained behind and the rest went elsewhere. But as she quite clearly says in previous logs, no one had reported any Thargoid encounters, seen any ships, 
Nothing at all. So if there were Thargoids left, where were they? It gets more confusing with the next part. If we had more time, we might have been able to run a more detailed analysis, but the data we have right now already paints a pretty grim picture as it is. The Thargoids are sowing the seeds for their return. We couldn't detect them before because the traces were so minuscule. Other than the idea of Thargoids remaining to seat barnacles, there are at least two more explanations popular amongst Xeno researchers. Noted xenobiologist Professor Ismail Palin commented on the fact that the alien probes known as Thargoid sensors were self-repairing in his statement to Galnet almost two years ago. Apparently, the objects have the ability to repair themselves, to regrow even, by extracting the necessary non-organic materials from their immediate environment. It really is quite remarkable. That's why they harm ships and other machinery. If they are damaged when they're scooped up, they use the metals in a ship's hull or a starport superstructure to repair themselves. Even minor damage will trigger the self-repair mechanism. We know the first of these probes were discovered being carried by federal convoys within the bubble, possibly being moved to research facilities after being picked up elsewhere. Due to the conspicuous silence from the federal government, first under Halsey and now under Hudson, we don't know when they first discovered these alien artifacts. It's entirely possible that the first ones were recovered right after the war. It could be that Cassandra's team realized the significance of finding Thargoid sensors seeded around known space, gathering data in preparation for their return. One fringe theory is that Thargoids might actually have made some sort of deal with a faction of humans after the war, and the Equinox team discovered evidence of that. Traces were so minuscule might mean their presence in our society was hard to detect, and this would help to put into context her earlier statement. It was literally under our noses the entire time. The Thargoids didn't leave. Cassandra's concern about the appearance of Thargoid-like material technology might be because it was the result of trade deals or shared knowledge rather than salvage. This explanation seems highly unlikely, though, and will likely forever remain the province of tinfoil hat-wearing conspiracy theorists. Who, or what, is Thunderchild? In three relatively short paragraphs, this last log of Cassandra Lockhart packs in revelation after revelation. The Thargoids might never have left. They might have been planning something significant even 130 years ago. The superpowers might have known the Thargoids were back even before Equinox figured it out. Expeditions to the Pleiades might have recovered Thargoid technology. They could well have brought back meta-alloys. Even if one of these is accurate, it could rewrite our history. What technological developments have sprung from recovered Thargoid technology? This final line asks more questions than it answers. Maybe Thunderchild could have done something, but they went dark in 69. In context, Lockhart seems to indicate that Thunderchild could have done something about getting people to listen to her about the Thargoids returning. What was Thunderchild that it could have had a greater influence than the actual project established to warn people if the Thargoids came back? Was it simply that someone involved with Thunderchild had some political clout, or was it something more significant? Maybe something that Thunderchild itself could do? While delving into this mystery, 
a search of historical records pulls up a very interesting ancient literary reference, dating all the way back to pre-spaceflight Earth, the dawn of civilization. In a little-known fiction novel written 1,500 years ago about an alien invasion of Earth, a sea-based warship called Thunderchild lands a crippling blow against one of the invaders. It is the only time in the story that primitive humanity is able to do any real harm to the rampaging aliens. It's possible that whoever named this project pulled the reference from this ancient story. If this is the case, it suggests that Thunderchild is likely a weapon intended to strike a blow against the Thargoids, in which case the Gale in the intercepted message might be the project lead, and Thunderchild Unit 01 might be a way of referencing her role. Or there were multiple units of Thunderchild and Gale was part of one of those. This all makes sense. However, as we'll discover shortly, the final message in the buffer might point to something much more significant to the future survival of humanity. Before we get into what Thunderchild might be, the final words recorded by Dr. Lockhart are bone-chilling. We're almost out of time. This was written in 3172. Lockhart felt very strongly that time was important and yet here we are 130 years later and apparently the Thargoids have only just returned. We can only speculate as to the reasons for the century-long delay. However, the final message from Thunderchild might indicate the answer to this, or at least an answer to consider. It's time to look at the final and most mysterious message stored in the message buffer of the Sarasvati. Unit 01, if you're receiving this, then I've got good news and bad news. The good news is the contingency worked. The bad news is the contingency was necessary. Before everything ended, Dr. Lockhart from Project Equinox managed to track me down. All the data in this archive, all their findings, you're going to need it for what comes ahead. The whole galaxy is going to need it. In all likelihood, by the time you've gotten this message, me, Izzy and the rest of the Thunderchild team will be long gone. And I'm sorry, I, I truly am. We've given you an enormous responsibility, one you never asked for. Listen, we all made mistakes. I'm not going to pretend that the cooperative didn't collapse for a reason. We watched the hopes and dreams of generations before us crumble in the face of political infighting in the decades following the war. But out of everything we got wrong, out of all our failures, you weren't one of them. Whatever else happens, I'm proud of you. We all are. Julian Lyons. On the surface, we have an almost personal update status message from someone that appears to be a key member of the Thunderchild team. While we know from this context that there was a team around Thunderchild, we don't know yet if Thunderchild was the name of something specifically in development, or the code name of a person being supported by a team, the name of the team itself, or all three. From the reference here, and in the Jatunheim listening post, we see the Unit 01 designation again. 
This may be simply a code name or a reference to one unit of several working under the Thunderchild project name. We have in this message reference to some interesting things. This is the second mention of an archive of data. We know from the Jetunheim message this refers to Dr. Calvin's research data, presumably another member of the Equinox project. You're going to need it for what comes ahead. The whole galaxy is going to need it. Obviously, Julian feels it's very important for whoever this message is addressed to, to recover the archive. And again, we can see this mirrors the original Jetunheim listening post message. In the upcoming struggle, Dr. Calvin's data may be critical. Calling all Galcop personnel, we must find Calvin's archive and retrieve the data at all costs. Intriguingly, we also get a possible answer to the apparent delayed return of the Ammonia aliens. Julian's reference to the contingency might be the answer we were looking for here. What could it have possibly been that was necessary, but also bad enough that Julian would seem to regret it? Given that, in context, this might be referring to delaying the return of humanity's greatest enemy. An argument could be made that whatever was necessary was justified. The implications of Lockhart's logs and Julian's last message might reach well into 3304 and beyond. By necessity, we're going to have to speculate a lot here in this conclusion. We'll be drawing connections based on one or two words or lines, and so it is nothing more than one interpretation of many. What is Thunderchild? We have references to the signal source of the message that awoke the Jotunheim listening post as both Thunderchild Unit 01 and Gale, and we've speculated that Unit 01 might be a military-style designation for a team headed up by Gale, or Gale's part of the project. What if that's not quite the case? What if Gale is Thunderchild, or rather, a Thunderchild? Delving into the archaic history of language, we find that Gale is derived from an ancient Earth language called Hebrew. The long-form name Abigail means Father's Joy. There's no denying that Julian Lyon's final message to Unit 01 could be called both sentimental and familiar, almost like a message to a child. But out of everything we got wrong, out of all our failures, you weren't one of them. Whatever else happens, I'm proud of you. We all are. Linguistically, this line suggests that Julian, and by extension the team, we, got Gale right. There's a possible explanation put forward by Commander Aldaris. Gale, Unit 01, is a creation of Julian and the Thunderchild team, a sentient machine intelligence, considered as a daughter by its creators, perhaps. The sentimental name Gale, Father's Joy, and the familiar, sentimental tone of the final message further supports this conjecture. If we're looking at Thunderchild in the literary sense of a weapon to use against the aliens, and possibly any other future threat to humanity, then breaking the law to create a sentient AI might have been a risk that some groups within Galcops saw as necessary. We've all heard the rumours of sentient machines in humanity's history having been deliberately or accidentally created, and how rapidly those machines had to be put down. It's created such a fear that the embargo on sentient machines is one of the few laws that every government, minor power, and even the pirates agree upon. In times of desperation, however, 
The lure of creating a super-intelligent battle machine to strategize might have been too tempting. It's not too much of a leap to imagine that to prevent such a machine from going rogue, it was raised as much like a human child as possible, taught it morals, and to value human life as a child might learn from parents, possibly even given a human form to help it, her, empathize. Since Galcop was very much on the front lines of the war, we can further imagine that Gale might have been a prototype. The moniker, Unit 01, indeed suggests there might have been plans for more. Imagine what could have been achieved with a few hundred machines sentient running combat ships, unable to be killed, simply learning from each loss, building strategies between quantum synapses and a positronic brain. Death is no longer a barrier to be feared, simply a strategy to be learned from. Could be that Dr. Calvin's archive, thought so vital to the war effort by the Thunderchild team, might actually be the collected research notes and design blueprints for Unit 01. The methodology to develop protective sentient AI to defend humanity against any alien threat. Given the terrible fear of sentient machines across all of human space, yet our total reliance on advanced computers in every aspect of our lives, it's understandable that the concept of a rogue, possibly human-formed sentient machine amongst us is disturbing. Where is Gale now? The Sarasvati was dead and empty, but she was almost certainly on board until very recently, dormant, waiting. It seems likely that when she was activated due to the mentions in the media of Thargoids returning that she left the Sarasvati and headed into the bubble to track down Calvin's archive as per Julian's last message. Is she still hunting for it? Can we help? Should we help? Would we know if a sentient machine was out there somewhere, especially if it broke with all tradition and was actually benevolent? Unit 01 if you are reading this, make yourself known. This reporter encourages every reader to analyze the logs, draw his or her own conclusions and investigate further. Find Calvin's archive, find Gale, search for more Equinox listening posts. If Lockhart was right, this might be vital for our very survival. Sagai New Year's Race. Twas a mismatched bunch of ships lined up at the beginning of Farsia Leap in Dekiat. A Sidewinder, a Cobra Mark III, a Diamondback Explorer, two Dolphins, and an Imperial Courier. The hard-working staff of Sagittarius I had dissembled from across the galaxy for a friendly little New Year's competition. But make no mistake, everybody wanted to win. The course was long and hard, with crashes into canyon walls guaranteed. Nonetheless, Commanders Louis Calvert, Other Buttons, Rasudin, Sir Twill, Souverine and Ulon raced three times around the perilous circuit on the evening of January the 1st, 3304. For the first race, Wiley Rasudin came in first with his speedy Imperial Courier. Other Buttons and Sir Twill were close behind in second and third respectively with their matching dolphins. The second race was somewhat more deadly. Editor Souverine came out on top with his trusty sidewinder, receding falling into second place. But there was no third place victor for all the others had crashed. 
In the final third round, Commander Oolong, in his Diamondback Explorer, claimed victory. Though Louis Calvert, runner-up in his Cobra Mark III, would have had that spot if his laser had fired more true. Once again, there were no other survivors to claim third place. It was a well-earned break from the hard work producing this magazine. Rest assured that all of us that crashed were able to pay our rebuy costs and we returned to work refreshed and excited. Fly safe, Commanders! The Type 10 Defender, Lacon's first combat ship. For many a rugged spacefaring commander, the name Lacon Spaceways is a linguistic madeline, capable of immediately evoking the pungent smell of greasy joints, the chesty cough of thrusters and a vision of spacious and angular cockpits. Arguably, more than any of the other spaceship manufacturers that share today's market, Lacon carries a powerful brand image, having been for over a century the obvious choice for space truckers and explorers. The faithful Lacon customer is a commander who spends long months in their ships and values reliability and practicality over style or performance. One who prefers a stern and utilitarian industrial design over smooth curves or flush surfaces. Indeed, as I first stepped into the newly released Type 10 Defender, a test model generously offered by Lacon to Sagittarius Eye for the purpose of this hands on review, and made my way into the enormous bridge, I immediately felt a distinct sense of familiarity, so similar this felt to the bridge of my Type 9. From the rugged steel of the internal bulkheads to the no frills but extremely comfortable seats, this is an environment showcasing all the recognisable Lacon traits. I must confess that I've always been a fan of Lacon style or, well, lack thereof and this new ship does not disappoint. Even the refrigerated compartment hidden below the engine diagnostic panel is the same as that on the Type 9 although I would not recommend alien hunters to fill it with conga ale as most space truckers do. The Type 10, the fourth model in the Type series, pushes this quintessentially Lacon style to a very new direction, being the first ship explicitly aimed at combat rather than long distance hauling or exploration. As it is immediately clear when first glancing upon it, the Type 10 is far from being a completely new design but rather a rework of the Type 9's hull. Lacon's flagship heavy hauler has been used as template in order to serve a different and regrettably urgent function, the fight against the Thargoids. Both larger and longer than the Type 9, 118 by 135 meters against the 117 by 115 of the older model, the Type 10 is no interceptor. It is a behemoth, specifically designed on the outside as well as the inside for facing our alien enemies in combat. The Type 10 particularly shines when putting its enormous firepower at the service of a wing of smaller more manoeuvrable vessels. Indeed, at a distance it could be easily confused for a Type 9 until you come close enough to notice the foldable wings, the glow of the 8 rear thrusters and of course its most divisive feature, the large spoiler on the rear. Such an aerodynamic appendage has obviously no purpose in the void of space and I suspect that the Lacon designers thought it would add a more aggressive edge to the rather bland Type 9 hull base 
Was it a successful choice? I'm not sure that a combat ship positively bristling with guns like the Type 10 needs anything more to convey its threat but I suppose someone might like it. Given the great similarity between the two models it is expedient to begin with a straight comparison to paint a more precise picture of how the Type 10 represents a combat oriented improvement upon its older sister. The core internal components remain the same with two important differences. The power plant has been upgraded from a grade 6 to a grade 8 and the frameshift drive from a grade 6 to a grade 7. The increase in total power output and jump range are welcome additions particularly for a combat ship that needs to be promptly deployed to the location of a Thargoid strike. What is more notable is something that has not changed in the transition from Type 9 to Type 10. The power distributor, still a modest grade 6. This contentious choice is likely a compromise made by Lacon in order to contain the price of their new ship while still making it an effective anti-Thargoid dreadnought. As those of you who are already engaged in combat with the Thargoids will doubtlessly know, the new anti-Xeno AX weapons developed by Aegis have an unusually low energy draw as compared to their regular counterparts putting far less stress on the ships power distributor. The T10 has 9 hardpoints, 2 small, 4 medium and 4 large making its theoretical damage per second even superior to that of the mighty Federal Corvette. To put this bluntly there is no way that you could mount regular energy weapons on the Type 10's 9 hardpoints and hope to fire them all at once for any useful amount of time. Only when equipped with AX weapons can the Type 10 really express its full potential and become a lumbering beacon of death. Lumbering indeed because the Type 10 stock grade 7 thrusters will require a significant upgrade or better yet engineering at Professor Palin's base in order to give it the necessary manoeuvrability to take on a Thargoid interceptor. Even after such tuning work the agility of this ship will still be short of that of an anaconda outfitted for Thargoid encounters. Still, even with stock thrusters the Type 10 offers a significantly better performance in both pitch and roll turn rates than the Type 9 does although the abysmal yaw rate is better passed over in silence. According to my tests it will reach a maximum speed of 179 meters per second a far better result than the paltry 131 meters per second reached by the Type 9. The AX weapons, flak launchers, missile racks and multi-cannons are best installed gimbaled or even turreted since the large hardpoint placement on this enormous ship causes a less than ideal convergence of fire for fixed weapons. In short, while the undersized power distributor is a bottleneck limiting the versatility of this ship in everyday combat situations and its sluggishness requires the use of gimbaled or turreted weapons, the sheer number of hardpoints and their advantageous placement if used for turrets make this ship a formidable adversary in the hands of an experienced commander. I should add a non-trivial detail. Lacon has found enough space on the hull of the Type 10 for 8 utility mounts. This puts this ship on a par with DeLacy's Anaconda and Core Dynamics Federal Corvette in terms of utility options and offers a wide variety of configurations. Alien hunters will undoubtedly want to mount a Xeno scanner and possibly stock up on as many shield boosters as supported by their power plant. This reviewer was not intrepid enough to test the ship in such a combat scenario 
but my sources tell me that a good pilot can indeed do some massive damage to Thargoid spacecraft thanks to the Type 10's sheer volume of fire. The optional internal modules are another area where the Type 10 shows its Type 9 heritage. The only upgrade Lacon offered in this new model are the two Grade 5 military compartments dedicated to hull or module reinforcement packages. They supplement the Type 10's already impressive hull. The Defender boasts an outstanding armour rating of 75 by Standard Pilots Federation Hull Hardness Ranking, the highest ever awarded and a marked improvement over the Type 9's 65. It follows that the Type 10's total cargo space is exactly the same as that of the Type 9 but a wealthy trader might still want to acquire this newer ship because of its superior jump range. Isn't it time for Lacon to give a much needed and long overdue upgrade to the ageing and now outclassed Type 9? Shouldn't its internals be reworked in order to offer a haulage capacity capable of rivaling Gutemeyer's cutter? This reviewer is pretty sure the answer to these questions is a resounding yes but I digress. Is the Type 10 the ship for you? Is it worth the 125 million credits Lacon is asking for it? While all Lacon ships are something of an acquired taste the Defender is very specifically targeting a particular kind of customer ...the Thargoid Hunter ...since there are other ships that outperform it in nearly every other task. As the title of this review suggests the Type 10 is a massive compromise both because it is physically enormous and because it requires combat pilots to accept some significant shortcomings in terms of power availability and manoeuvrability. But those who are willing to make this compromise will be rewarded with a solid, reliable and lethal vessel Lacon style. The Halsey Conspiracy with the possible exception of the notoriously flagrant Imperial Royal Family, no public figure is more docked by controversy than ex-Federal President Jasmina Halsey. Beginning with her aggressive campaign against onion head farmers in Lou in late 3300s, all the way up to her recent humanitarian efforts, her priorities have shifted as dramatically as her status has decreased. Some call her a visionary. Some call her a lunatic. I call her a victim of a conspiracy one perpetrated in plain view of the whole galaxy. President Halsey was once a fairly middle-of-the-road federal president. One might be forgiven for being surprised at her Liberal Party allegiance, for it was she who initiated the Federation's aggressive war on Onion Head, declaring the drug a threat to the galaxy's youth. The Federal Congress grew to hate her for her campaign, which many saw as only amplifying the problem as Onion Head sales increased dramatically and Onion Gate protesters challenged her decision across the Federation. She even rubbed members of her own administration the wrong way. Her tumultuous relationship with the Admiral of the Fleet, Admiral Vincent, was well known. Her hawkish aggression continued throughout her presidency, with deadly consequences. To support her invasion of Lou, she pushed for a new Farragut cruiser, the FNS Nevermore to step up its production process so it could join the attack. The cruiser had a terrible systems malfunction, resulting in dozens of lives lost and hundreds of millions of credits and damages. Worse yet, believing a terrorist to be aboard an unarmed refugee convoy, she ordered the Navy to fire on the ships. More than 9,000 civilians died in the attack, and her approval ratings plummeted to less than 30%. 
she was perhaps not a great politician, too ruled by conviction to care for the opinions of her legislators, or indeed, her constituents. She did give many powerful speeches in her time. No doubt, like many of you, I recall her triumphant victory speech upon her Liberty Party win that put her in power. A poor politician, but a truly great orator. Following these disastrous events, and in the face of increasing pressure and even harassment from the Federal Congress, Halsey exhibited some unusual but long overdue humility. She scheduled a tour throughout the federal systems to meet with leaders and discuss how the Federation could better support them and meet their needs. We all know what happened next. On an unscheduled detour from its planned route, the Narwhal liner Starship One disappeared, with Halsey and Vice President Naylor aboard. The news shocked the galaxy. For three quarters of the following year, she was simply missing. No one knew what had happened to the federal presidential starship. When Halsey was finally discovered nine months later in an escape pod brought to Leonicheno orbital by one of a massive group of independent commanders, much had changed. She had been replaced by her Secretary of State, Felicia Winters, as acting president. And then Winters was quickly ousted when two-thirds of Congress made a vote of no confidence in the liberal administration. Zachary Hudson, her former opponent, fervent critic, and core dynamics-backed leader of the Federal Republican Association, took power. The galaxy had largely moved on when Halsey was found. Worlds across inhabited space were embroiled in the superpowers escalating Cold War, a war which might turn to open conflict at any moment. For another month, Halsey was in a deep coma, from which she might have never recovered. Finally, on March 23, 3302, she was revived, but not as the Jasmina Halsey we remembered. This Halsey was different, saying that she had been visited by intelligent alien races out in the black. It was wonderful, amazing. I saw the universe and the galaxy within it as I'd never seen it before, and I felt the presence of the real caretakers of our galaxy. The paradox of their existence, tiny yet gargantuan, fleeting yet eternal. They spoke to me as I drifted in the void. It was amazing, I must share their message. Pundit scoffed at the time, but this was before independent commanders began encountering the crashed Thargoid vessels out in the Pleiades, and the galaxy-spanning ruins of the Guardians were discovered. She claimed to have seen the true architects of creation and to have been shown what she describes as the infinities of the cosmos. Halsey pleaded for exploration data to confirm her theories about these aliens, and there were many who thought her mad. Her time at the Clearwater Psychiatric Institute did little to quell these concerns. Quite aside from these cries about aliens, Halsey pulled an abrupt about-face from her previous loyalty to the Federation declaring that both it and the Empire was guilty of wanton violence and endangering the poor and downtrodden. At one of Halsey's first public appearances since her discharge from Clearwater, she announced that she would soon be relocating to Alliance Space to take up a position in Alliance Prime Minister Edmund Mound's staff, thereby severing all ties to the Federation. She organized shelters for war refugees and criticized saber-rattling by the galaxy's leaders, declaring that we must put aside our petty differences. Even as the Federation and Empire withdrew from the Pleiades Cluster, ending the Cold War, she warned that the superpower's tenuous peace would not last. 
For many, there is no mystery for Halsey's story. She was a typical politician, awash in hypocrisy and the trademark federal corruption, until her ship was lost in a hyperspace accident and she went space mad from their time adrift in an escape pod. Others might see her vision as just that, a vision, making her a kind of prophet to guide humanity into its future. Both of these perspectives, however, are missing some crucial data. For what classified reason did Space Flight 1 take an unscheduled detour from its planned route shortly before its disappearance? Exactly what happened between Halsey's disappearance and her rediscovery? What happened between her rediscovery and her revival? And what really happened during Halsey's treatment at Clearwater? There has been very little transparency during the whole of this conversion from political warmonger to visionary charity worker. Much of the information I have looked for has been stamped and sealed classified and off-limits. We know that there were many, many people who had reason to want Halsey out of the way prior to Starship One's disappearance. It is statistically improbable that the vessel could have remained unfound for so long, especially if it disappeared in some kind of accident. There is only one explanation that this reporter can think of. Someone, or a group of someones, wanted her to go missing, and then wanted her to be found. They could be some malevolent, powerful organization operating behind the curtains of galactic power. On the other hand, perhaps they weren't even human. They were intelligent aliens, as ridiculous as that sounds. If true, then perhaps Elsie's time at the Clearwater facility was an attempt by those in power to silence her new altruistic bent, although it doesn't seem to have worked. Unfortunately, this is all I can uncover on the mystery of Jasmina Halsey. At every corner I am confounded. My usual trusted sources remain tight-lipped on the subject. Every classified data facility I infiltrate holds nothing but dead ends. Upon taking the slightest interest in the subject, however, it is easy to conclude that some manner of conspiracy is taking place right in front of us. The galaxy is growing ever more dangerous, commanders. Fly safe and keep an eye on the sky. Thank you for listening to Issue 5 of Sagittarius Eye magazine. This issue featured articles written by Camisade Greatest, Louis Calvert, Miniwato Rasudin Suvereen and Wilfred Sephiroth, and was edited by Suvereen and Wilfred Sephiroth. This audio edition featured the voices of All Crows Are Black, Burr, Daryl Gar, Edleweiss, Maya Fay, Rini, Rosetta Stone, Suvereen, and Wotherspoon, and was edited by Edleweiss and Suvereen. Music was composed and performed by Dustin Midnight Driscoll. We'd like to thank our Patreon subscribers for their continued support of our efforts to entertain and inform the galaxy by commanders for commanders. For copies of back issues of our magazine, please visit our website at sagittarius-i.com. Sagittarius I was created using assets and imagery from Elite Dangerous with the permission of Frontier Developments PLC for non-commercial purposes. It was not endorsed by nor reflects the views and opinions of Frontier Developments, and no employee of Frontier Developments was involved in the making of it. Sagittarius.